I mean, we think of food studies as a lens through which to analyze and do something about the most important problems in society. I can't think of any major societal problem that isn't linked to food in some way. We've seen this with the coronavirus. I, you know, the coronavirus has shown up problems in the food system that most people didn't even realize existed. The plight of low-wage workers in meatpacking and slaughterhouse facilities, for example, and the fact that all of a sudden they're essential and the president invokes the defense Production Act in order to force them to go to work when 60,000 of them have gotten sick and several hundred have died. I mean, an astonishing event. The idea that food is being destroyed while people are online for handouts at food banks and food pantries, something we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Welcome to the award winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. I'm glad to have Marion Nestle back. She just launched her book, Let's Ask Marion. I consider it her most accessible book so far. I read What to Eat. That's around 500 pages, and I loved it. But Let's Ask Marion is under 200 pages, and it's with quick chapters. It's still comprehensive, and it still covers Marion's most important topics. Our conversation, what you're about to hear, gives some background that's not in the book of her co-author, Carrie Truman, who researched the questions, asked them, and planned with Marion the book's structure and content, so you get a piece of the other co-author. You might not know that since her first appearance on this podcast, I'll put a link to it in the notes, I sat in on her class at NYU. This is one of the benefits of teaching there myself. So I got to know her work and her history in more depth. She basically helped found food research. And this book is her most accessible so far. And this conversation will give you some background that's not in the book. So here's Marian. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Marian Nessel. Marian, how are you doing? I'm just doing fine. Or as well as can be expected under the circumstances. Yeah, we have to put that in these days. And it's great to talk with you again. Listeners of this podcast will, well, they'll recognize you because hopefully they've read your stuff independent of this podcast. They would have heard you on this podcast about a year or so ago, and I mentioned you periodically. And what they don't know is that since then, I got so into your stuff that I sat in on your class at NYU. And so I've gotten to know you a bit more. But your latest book is, now I've read a bunch of your stuff. I think it's all accessible. This one, I think, is yet more accessible. And it really comes off as, like, you read the table of contents and you read the questions. You're like, yeah, what is the answer to that question? <laughs> it's so obvious. And yet, I don't think I've read this book before. I wonder if you could say a few words about how the book came to be. I'm also curious about, about your co-author, I guess. Carrie it seems to be mm-hmm. a major piece of the book. Her questions are not just random questions. They're well-researched. They're thoughtfully stated. And I looked her up and does not hold well there's all the articles that she's written often co-written with you on your food politics but also her own civil eats and huff post and stuff like that i wonder if you could give us the backstory of where the book came from and a bit about her 
Yeah, sure. Because the book is really different than anything I've ever done. It was essentially commissioned by University of California Press uh, in the sense that the editor, who I've worked with quite a bit there on several books, uh, said, Marion, would you please do a short summary of your books? Your books are wonderful, but they're 500 pages and they're really too much for you know, any human, any mere mortal to read. What we'd really like is for you to do a short summary of the work that you've been doing and your ideas and the trajectory of your career over the years, but we want it to be really short. And I said, I can't do that. Um, I was really resistant and I knew I couldn't do it because I had written columns for the San Francisco Chronicle for about five years and they were tortured to write. They were so hard for me. They were supposed to be Q&A, questions and answers, but nobody ever wrote in questions. So uh, once a month or whenever I was writing them, I had to dream up what I was going to talk about and try to figure out a way to do it in 800 words. I found that with no reference. And I found that very difficult to do. And so we went back and forth through several possible iterations of how to do this. And finally, I remembered Carrie Truman. Carrie Truman was writing a blog called Eating Liberally about 10 years ago. And she started, she was a friend, and she started every now and then she'd ask me a question. And her questions were delightful to answer. I don't know how else to put it. They were witty, they were clever, they were interesting, they were extremely well informed. They were basically mini essays. And she would write a 150, 200 word question and send it to me on whatever was happening in the world. And they were really fun for me to answer. And I could whip them off, just absolutely whip them off. I'd get the question, I'd sit down. An hour later, I was done with it. And she would post them on Eating Liberally, which no longer exists. But I co-posted them on my website. And she, her posting of them was under the title, Let's Ask Marion. So essentially, the title of the book is hers, because that was what she dreamed up. And so I, I thought, why don't I ask her if, 10 years later if she'd be interested in doing something like that again? And she agreed to do it. And I could never have done this book without her, because she was writing these questions about, you know, we had sort of worked out the vague general topics that I thought needed to be covered in a book like this. And we agreed that we would do six questions on personal diets, six questions on community food politics, and six questions on international food politics, because that's, you know, these are the things that I'm interested in. And we sort of worked out the general area. She wrote the questions, 150, 200 words, mini essays. And I wrote, I wrote medium-sized essays uh, in response. And that's the book. Yeah, I was curious because it does seem to be a superstructure. I, when I first got it, I just started jumping through and looking at the questions I was most interested in. And then I went back to the beginning to read the, the introduction. And then I started seeing that there was a... I mean, it seems to me there's a superstructure to the book. There, oh, it absolutely. seems to go personal to the political. And mm-hmm. so it's not just she just wrote a few questions. How much work did you put into that? Well, it's not just Q&A. You know, it's not 
a 50-word question and a 100-word answer. There are 150 to 250-word questions and 800 to 1,000-word answers. So it's more serious than a typical Q&A. And so they're, mid, they're essays. Her questions are essays, little teeny ones, yeah. and mine are slightly longer ones. So it's not like... Um, it doesn't read like a Q&A book, but it does read like a conversation between the two of us, which was kind of what I was trying to do. And what the press was looking for was something that was easy, low-key, accessible, and yet comprehensive. And there are references in it. There, It's just not footnoted and the references are in the back and there are references to each of the questions and then general references for people who want to read more about it. But I wanted the questions to cover the things that I think are the really, really important issues that are in nutrition right now, but also to deal with the kinds of things that I get asked all the time. So go read my book. I don't have to answer that. (laughs) It's interesting that there are a few concepts that really permeate and you could have, any one of the answers you could have gone on for a long time. I certainly, and I have. Yeah. Well, what I liked was that the some topics like systems or politics will enter in the beginning, but you flesh them out more fully later. But the way that they, the things that repeat seem to me the things that are these, these concepts that are the most important concepts for you in food. And if I remember right at the beginning, you said, number one is food is delicious. Yes. <laughs> Lost in many food writer stuff. It's, uh, I'm afraid. Yeah. yeah. And would you also play out, you talk about, you know, I've never, what did you say? I haven't met a carbohydrate. I didn't like something like that. (laughs) And that humanity is there. Systems and how to change systems. The counter, what's the word? Counteraction between the personal and the political, the systems and the individual. Not so easy to play out because a lot of people feel like, what do I actually do? But isn't that what government has to do? Hmm. So I think that I would guess that I was reading it thinking, did she hold herself back here in order to put it in with more punch later? Or like, did you think of how that would work out, how to infuse certain things throughout rather than putting it all in at once? Well, I tried to summarize that in the introduction. Um, You know, I have a list of themes in the introduction of things that in reading over what I had done at the end, I could see that the same things kept coming up over and over again, you know, that food is delicious and people really love the taste of it. And it's one of life's greatest pleasures. Food is political. There are new concepts that are very important right now. The concept concept of ultra-processed, for example, which I think is enormously important, is relatively new. Some of the international aspects are relatively new. And I end with a concluding chapter that talks about how you advocate personally and politically to try to change the system to one that's healthier for people in the environment. So it it seemed to me that if you, with the questions, the introduction and the conclusion, you have kind of a complete summary of the way I think about these issues without going into it at book length. I hope that this will stimulate people who are interested in going into it in depth and going back and reading some of the books. I certainly cite them. You know, if you want to know about food industry funding of research, you read Unsavory Truth. If you want to know know about soda advocacy, you read Soda Politics. 
if you want to know the basis of the how why food is political, you read food politics. And if you have to, if you want to have fun, you read Eat, Drink, Vote, which is the cartoon book. And I can't help but ask now, you started, can I say you started an industry? I mean, you started, you started a program that is now, it's not been replicated, but there's, there's others. You've seen a lot of change over the past, since mm-hmm. you got started. And then you have a lot of students who've come out. I'm sure some of the students just take your classes as a one-off, but I'm sure many of them take your classes as part of a program to mm-hmm. follow in your footsteps and to, take, to go in new directions. What's it like seeing that? What, what have you seen? What are some trends? How does it feel? Well, it's just enormously gratifying. You know, there are, uh, it's very unusual to create a new program at a university as we did the programs in food studies at New York University in 1996 under the most extraordinarily luckily, the most extraordinarily lucky circumstances. You know, the stars were aligned. We were able to create undergraduate masters and doctoral programs in food studies in 1996. We were the first food studies programs in the country, if not the world. There was a gastronomy program at Boston University that was probably the closest thing at the time. Now, if you go on the website of the Association for the Study of Food and Society, which represents food studies scholars, and look at the list of universities that have these programs now, there are probably 50 or 60 programs like that throughout the world. That's just thrilling. You know, I thought, wow, look what we started. You know, we created a whole field of study. The timing was right. And as I put it, the stars were aligned. We could never have done it in any other place at any other time. But we made it possible for all of these other programs to be created. And we established food studies as a legitimate field of study at the university level, which was, you know, as I think back on it, absolutely miraculous that we were able to do that. And the program is still going strong. This is year 25 or whatever it is, and 26, 25. And the, you know, we've had hundreds of graduates and they're all out doing fabulous things and they're still coming in. It's very exciting. I mean, I'm just thrilled by it. Who wouldn't be? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot left to be done. I mean, there's so much, so much more need. I don't know if there's more need for it, but I mean, environment, obesity, and all these, these issues of, of the funding for the soy and corn and all these things. It's like, I wish there was no need for your books. <laughs> or, well, you know, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we think of food studies as a lens through which to analyze and do something about the most important problems in society. I can't think of any major societal problem that isn't linked to food in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen this with the coronavirus. I, you know, the coronavirus has shown up problems in the food system that most people didn't even realize existed. The plight of low-wage workers in meatpacking and slaughterhouse facilities, for example, and the fact that all of a sudden they're essential and the president invokes the defense Production Act in order to force them to go to way, to work when 60,000 of them have gotten sick and several hundred have died. I mean, an astonishing event. The idea that food is being destroyed while people are online for handouts at food banks and food pantries, something we haven't seen since the Great Depression. 
And then all of a sudden, everybody figured out that schools are about feeding kids as well as teaching kids. If kids don't go to school, where did they get their food? I, I mean, it's these kinds of things that advocates have been fussing about for years are food system issues, and all of a sudden they're part of popular culture in a way that they never have been before. So that's also fascinating and in some ways quite gratifying. I'm going to bring up something that I, I wasn't planning on this, but I'm on, on Reddit. I belong to the NYU subreddit, and it's students posting stuff. And a little while ago, they posted the food that they were getting when they were in lockdown. Oh, amazing. Yeah, what was your thoughts? (laughs) Well, it got sent to me. I mean, I was, my email was flooded with photographs of what these kids were being fed. And I was just astonished. I mean, but let's look at the reality of it. NYU had 2,500 students in quarantine. 2,500 in buildings all over the city, uh, in quarantine, and food was delivered to them. That's 2,500 separate meals that had to be delivered in many, many places. So just think of the logistic problem involved in that. So I only heard about it at first from the receiving end. Mm -hmm. And from the receiving end, they were being given junk food. Uh, essentially, they were being given potato chips and snack foods and things in boxes and uh, nothing fresh. And they began objecting and the objections got louder and louder. And I certainly wrote letters immediately or wrote emails immediately to NYU officials saying, what's going on here? And they responded by saying, we realize we have a terrible problem and we're working 24-7 to try to fix it. But understand, we've got 2,500 individual meals Mm -hmm. that have to be delivered. And this one does, this one is gluten-free and that one is allergic to peanuts and this one is something else. So it's, it was, the logistics were very difficult. I hope they fixed it. I certainly haven't heard anything about it recently. So I'm assuming things got better. Yeah, I guess I haven't heard about it recently. I, to me, I couldn't help I looked up that roughly a year before, February 2019, I think, uh, the school had said, we will never buy more plastic water bottles. And I was like, <laughs> that went away pretty quick. Whoa, that too. Ah, good point. So there were complaints that they didn't have enough bottled water. So to that, I said, what's wrong with tap water? You're in New York City. Yeah. New York City has the best tap water in the country. What's wrong with taking it out of the tap? But they have gotten so used to drinking bottled water that it would never occur to them to drink tap water. And the other thing that I think of the proximity of NYU to the Union Square Farmers Market is so, I I can't understand why that resource is not tapped. It seems like a perfect symbiosis. Oh, that's logistics. That's a logistic issue. It means somebody has to go and collect the food and package it and deliver it to the students and make sure the lettuce is washed. So I, you know, I see it from both sides. I think it was very, very hard on the students. I mean, can you imagine going to college and being locked up in your room for the next two weeks? That's pretty, pretty hard to deal with. And from the standpoint of the university, the university's food services contracted out. It's Chartwell's. And Chartwell's was completely unprepared for dealing with this, obviously. They also just started a new contract because the old one I think there was like a, a brouhaha when was Ar- was Aramark used to be Aramark. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like there's a perfect storm there as well. You you reminded me of something else I wanted to bring up that you said in your book several times. Um, that this to me is a mark of leadership. There's several times you said I don't know. 
And, you know, there's like research this way, there's research that way. It's really tough to tell. Like, I think it was in the context of, of um, eggs and cholesterol. And a lot of this stuff is really complex. It's not definitive. It's very difficult to make comprehensive studies. Of, like, you can't lock people into a room and say, only eat this for very long. And I was glad to read some of those things that a lot of people, I mean, if food is notorious for like, here's the superfood, here's the answer. So I appreciate that. Well, you know, I'm trained in science. My doctorate was in molecular biology. And one of the things we were taught was to try to interpret science as best we could and to be pretty aware of what we knew and what we didn't know. And I'm a, I will never get over how complicated nutrition research is to do. It's just really intellectually challenging to try to figure out how to figure out what people who are eating lots and lots of different foods, not only on, on one particular day, but from day to day, how do you describe what somebody's average diet is if they don't eat the same thing every day? And most people don't. Some people do, but most people don't. Um, and you can't lock them up, at least not for very long. I do describe in the book uh, the one experiment that was done last year on ultra-processed foods where at NIH they did lock people up for a month and got spectacular results when they controlled what people were eating and observed that the people who ate ultra-processed foods or a diet based on ultra-processed foods ate 500 calories a day more than when they were eating foods that weren't so highly processed and gained weight. No surprise, if they're eating 500 calories a day more, they're going to gain weight. I mean, that was a spectacular study, but it was one of the few that, was, that has been done under controlled conditions where everything that the people in that study ate was measured. You can't do that for more than a month or maybe two, but beyond that, people... I mean, people say, look how upset everybody is about yeah. being quarantined and then think about doing that voluntarily. It's, uh, it's very hard to think about. So it's hard to control nutrition experiments. It's very easy to manipulate the results that you want by the way you frame the question. It's mm -hmm. very, very easy. I get letters all the time from food trade association saying we're looking for to fund study. We have $50,000. We want to fund a study that will demonstrate the benefits of our product. They're not looking for open-ended research. That's going to find out science. They're looking for studies that are going to show benefit, and they're not going to fund studies that are have that run a risk of not showing benefit. So that's manipulated science. I think it's very easy to do in nutrition. Yeah, there's another quote that I pulled. It said, I can guess who did them by what they report. <laughs> right. I guess who paid for them by what they report. Uh, I'm not always right, but I'm right a lot of the time. And you look, you think, first of all, why did they do that study? Why would anybody do a study like that? You know, I mean, the example that I use a lot in class is mangoes are better than fiber supplements for constipation. I love mangoes. Why do they need to fund a study like that? You know, they're trying to sell mangoes. I, I don't know. There are better ways to do this. I think it messes up nutrition science, and I don't like it very much. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. 
you'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Well, I appreciate your, that makes it hard for the writer. It's much easier if there's like conclusive studies that are very, you know, that would be an easier book to write, but you still write meaningfully. So they've made your job harder, but you still do it. I guess you've been practicing for a while. I've been practicing, yeah. I mean, I discussed the mango study in Unsavory Truth, which is a whole book about food industry funding of nutrition research advice and practice. You know, I'm, I allude to it in in the Let's Ask book, but I've already taken care of that one. It was a great big book. <laughs> yeah, I think you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're saying for someone who hasn't read your books so far, start with Let's Ask Marion and then... Is that, is that a good entry point or? Oh, it's a, ga- it's a gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to start. If you don't know anything about it and want to start somewhere, that's, yeah, I guess that's what its purpose was, was to get started. And then if you want to get serious about politics, you read food politics. You want to get serious about food safety, you read the next one. You know, I did write a book for the general public called, you know, What to Eat. And that came out in 2006, I think. It's 500 pages. You know, I went aisle by aisle through a supermarket and tried to deal with every issue that came up in every section of the supermarket. But it's 500 pages with 50 pages of references. You know, I mean, so uh, let's ask Marion, is this little tiny thing? You know, it's a tiny little book. It's four by six. You can hold it in your hand and stick it in your pocket. Um, it's teeny, I, very unusual for me. Well, I mean, it's in a style if you're not in a style, how do I put it? I mean, food politics is also very accessible. It's daily, it's, it's short. And you have a, a humor, not always, but sometimes you have a humor that's... Uh, food politics is 500 yeah. pages. Oh, I mean, food politics, your blog. Oh, my blog. Yeah. Ah, that's a different matter. That's a daily summary of whatever it is that interests me that's going on and written in blog style. Very easy to read, links to the references, you know, or at least that's what I try to do. Mm-hmm. Is It's basically my online file cabinet for finding documents that I want to put my hands on in a hurry it has a terrific search engine so it's uh, you know as a as a place to find out what's happening in current events in food politics i find it really useful you know i can attest that for what to eat i can say i read it cover to cover but i skipped some of the stuff that i don't eat so like Mm. i was just fascinated by some of the history and and like why are things the way they are Mm. was it a delight to read it was it it kept me reading more because i was like I kept getting to some chapter and be like, all right, I'm going to stop here. And then I'm like, oh, all right, let me just read a little bit more here. Well, they were short chapters. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, it, you went through a supermarket and we've all gone through supermarkets. Mm-hmm. All right. So I want to, before wrapping up, I want to ask, I think, I don't remember if we were recording last time, but if I remember right, you have a peach tree growing on a balcony or... In Manhattan. Yeah. And, and I missed the peaches this year because I'm one of the New Yorkers who fled. Oh, 
I would have watered it for you. <laughs> My neighbors got the peaches. Okay. Okay. They said they were very good. <laughs> That's what I was, I was really curious. I, uh, peaches, blueberries, raspberries, figs, strawberries. You're growing all those? All those. Oh man. Yeah. I, I was thinking of you because I have my CSA, but I was with a friend and we were picking up her CSA. And for some reason, they had a ton of nectarines that people hadn't picked up. And so even though, so they said to her, you only have a vegetable share, but if you want this extra fruit, take some. And she said, mm-hmm. don't mind if I do. And so I said, can I ask? I asked her like, I don't want to get you in trouble, but can I ask if I can have some? And they're like, yeah, yeah I have some. So I got these nectarines from, I don't know exactly where, but it must've been a nearby farm. Mm-hmm. And that made me think of your peaches because I had this coming up. Yeah, well, when, tr- when they bear, they bear, and you got to take them off. You know, I mean, that's it's one of the amazing things about growing food is that when it's ready to be picked, it's ready to be picked, and you got to do it. But, yeah, where I am, we also have a garden, but I missed my garden this year. Actually, did which came first? Did you grow up growing food? I know you grew up during, during the Depression, so maybe you did. Because my getting into food is leading me to grow stuff. I have a tomato plant on my roof and a basil plant over there. And, mm-hmm. and actually, I, I want to go to my co-op board and put a serious garden up there. And I'm curious, did, you, did food come first and then the studies? Did the studies come first and then the food? Or? Well, my parents had a victory garden during the Second World War. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I remember that. They grew cherry tomatoes and other kinds of things. And... I, you know, I spent a lot of, most of my life in California where things just grow Oh yeah. or did, where they did grow. And I specifically asked, I live in NYU housing and I specifically asked if I could move into an apartment that had a terrace where I could establish a garden and you know, once you have the space and you've got pods, you can put lots of interesting things in pods if you can figure out what will survive the winter. So the biggest challenge is figuring out what survives that strange agricultural zone, which has, in the years that I've lived in that apartment, the zone has shifted from uh, seven to five, no, from five to seven. It's much warmer in New York than it was when I first moved there, mm-hmm. uh, amazingly enough. And so, you know, I experiment with what grows and what doesn't. The blueberries have done splendidly. The raspberries are okay. Figs are iffy. The fig tree, um, I've had, to, you know, I keep trying figs, but it's borderline. And the peach seems to do just fine. It's just past one thirty, and you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's, uh, that's worth bringing up before wrapping up? No, it's just that I'm teaching a class at NYU this fall online on uh, food politics in the coronavirus era. And I'm using the book as a text in the class. And I'm very interested to find out what, I mean, I think most of the students are got an online version of the book because the students are in places like Singapore, Hong Kong, Croatia, Abu Dhabi. They're all over the world. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, they're certainly not sitting in a classroom in front of me, I'll tell you that. So I'm very curious to see what they think of it. But I thought the book was perfect for this class. And I hope they think so too. Well, 
from my part, I thank you for making something so accessible. And so I keep thinking of just reading the table of contents and the questions being like, yeah, what is the answer to that? <laughs> oh, well, it's my answer to that. I don't expect everybody to share my views of these things, but I hope they'll take them seriously. Well, Mary Nessel, thank you very much. My pleasure. I was glad to get some of that personal touch at the end about the plants that Marion grows and her attitude to them. Not just what she does, but how she talks about it. She wrote in the book that her top consideration about food is that it's delicious. Food is also personal. We can grow it. It becomes us. I hope that that intimate connection to our food came out in our conversation, and especially that we can increase the intimacy. We can increase that connection. Most Americans, as far as I can tell, they seem to view food, exercise, the environment as horror shows. Sources of guilt, shame, confusion, uncertainty. Marion lives the opposite. I think that I do too. Knowing all about food and our food systems, it may seem like work because it's kind of hard to get through, but it leads to delicious joy, community, and connection. It started me on this journey to do this podcast, to write what I write, to bring in the people that I do. If food is not a major source of joy, community, and connection for you, the opportunity is there to make it so. I hope this helps. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.